Hello, and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. I'm glad you could join us for the podcast today, and well, we'll be in the second chapter of, well, excuse me, no, we'll be in the second book, not chapter, of Corinthians, and we'll be in chapter number six. There we go. Um, so, glad you could join us for the study today as we continue verse by verse through God's Word, seeking not just to read the text, but to understand it, understand its context, its background, and how it applies to our lives today. Thus the name of the podcast, Grasping Scripture. Our goal is to grasp hold of the meaning of Scripture and apply it to our lives. So I'm glad you've joined us for this journey. I welcome you along. And I want to encourage you, if you're joining us for the first time, you probably need to back up and start at least at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, uh, not just dive in at chapter 6. You might even want to back up to the beginning of 1 Corinthians just to get some context and background for where we are. But I think you'll find it useful and edifying if you're just joining us in chapter 6. You know, that's, that's okay too. We're glad to have you. Again, the goal of this podcast, the, the whole purpose of me doing this, is so that we can study through God's Word, that we can hear His voice through His Word. We can begin to understand how it all fits together, and we can grasp hold of how it applies to our lives and our hearts today. God's Word is an amazing thing. Scripture is not just a dead book. It is alive. It is God's word speaking to us. So thank you for joining us. Let's turn to God in prayer and we'll dig into the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your word that you have preserved through the ages for us in the Bible. And Father, we thank you for your word become flesh in Jesus the Christ. Father, that you came and dwelt among us in the flesh, showing us your nature and character, and then paying the price for our sin so that we no longer had to. Then rising again to show us there's victory over death and there is eternal life in you. Lord, we thank you for inviting us into a relationship with you. You are creator, loved us, your creation, enough to do everything we needed. And we thank you. We thank you for your word and ask that you help us to hear it and to understand it. It is in Jesus name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, as I said, we're in chapter six of Second Corinthians. We've we've come a good ways together uh, to get here. As we just finished out chapter five in the last podcast, we talked about uh, Paul's references to a new body that we've got. You know, something extremely valuable in these perishable bodies. We've got this earthly tent, but we long for that heavenly home. 
Um, and then he moves on to talk about being ambassadors for Christ, that we are God's ambassadors in this world. We are called to, to live for him and to carry the message of the gospel. And, and in that, we even talked about this idea that, uh, well, I'll just read it. Verse 20 of chapter 5. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. God gives us the opportunity, invites us to be part of his redemptive work. We're not doing the heavy lifting. We're carrying the message forward. And he gives us that part of the work and includes us in what he is doing, not just as recipients, but participants telling others, carrying that message, speaking, letting Christ speak through us, saying, come back to God. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful invitation from God. And what a beautiful thing that he includes us in what he's doing. Because he didn't have to. But he chose to. That is an awesome thing. And it's coming right off of that discussion that we move into chapter 6. And there's, uh, starting in verse 14, there's some issues with the text we'll talk about. But don't get derailed by that at this point. Let's dive into chapter 6, verse 1. As God's partners, there it is again, as God's partners, Paul here seems to be talking primarily about himself and Timothy, but he's also trying to loop in the Corinthians into this because he's trying to reconcile a strained relationship with some of the believers in the church there at Corinth. But he acknowledged as God's partners, as God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. So, he talks about us being God's partners, working together, not just with them, but with God. And, and there again, he's referring back to what he closed out chapter 5 with, this carrying forward of the message of the gospel, this invite to humanity to come back. And then he quotes from Isaiah, or at least the Greek version of Isaiah, along about chapter uh, 49 or so. Um, to, At just the right time, I heard you on the day of salvation, I helped you. And he says, yeah, indeed, the right time is, is now. Today is that day of salvation. So in just two verses, he has gone from talking about the reality of the gospel and what it means to life as an apostle and the message that is carried forward as an apostle, expanding that out to a message that is carried by all believers and the obligation that we have to live as ambassadors for Christ, carrying that message. And then he brings it still even further in the first part of chapter six to say, hey, we are partners with God in this endeavor. 
That includes you. And we are begging you, don't accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness. Now, he wants you to accept it, but don't just accept it and then ignore it. Don't just grab hold of it, set it aside, and then never mess with it again. It should mean so much more than that, because it is so much more than that. Let's continue on as we look at the next verse. In verse 3, he goes on by saying, We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us, and no one will find fault with our ministry. There again, he's not talking collective we, he and the Corinthian church. He's talking we as in Paul, Timothy, the others that are working in ministry with him, the ministry of the apostles. Some of these things that, um, well, that the Corinthians and some, some of the folks in the church at Corinth anyway, have been lobbying accusations about. And Paul draws it back in. He says, we live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us. And no one will find fault with our ministry. You know, there's these accusations, but he's saying they're wrong. I'm going to stand on the truth of what I have done and what I am doing. You see, Paul's commitment to live justly before God, to live out the righteousness of God and obedience to God, was not dependent on what other people around him were saying. It wasn't dependent on the opinion of individuals within the church at Corinth or any other church for that matter. It was totally dependent on God's opinion of Paul. And that's a thing that's a great reminder that I keep coming across now. That reminder, we are who Christ says we are, not who we say we are, not who someone else says we are. We are, in fact, who Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Creator, says we are. There's one voice we need to listen to and take guidance from. Well, he says, we live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us, and no one will find fault in our ministry. And then verse 4, in everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We have been beaten, put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us and by our sincere love. Now you can flip over to Galatians real quick, uh, about the sixth chapter, and look at the things that are listed as fruit of the Spirit, and you're going to find it's real similar to that list. By the way, written by the same guy. Um, so it's not just coincidence, but it's also the truth. When we have the Holy Spirit in us, when we have the very indwelling presence of Christ in our lives, because we have turned to him as Savior and Lord, his presence in our life shows. It shows. And when it shows, it looks like purity, understanding, patience, kindness. The Holy Spirit within us, things like self-control, and sincere love. 
And Paul is saying there, there is the thing that points to the truth of our ministry in Christ. We're not doing it for acclaim. We're not doing it for recognition or fortune. We're not doing it because it makes us proud. We're not doing it because it builds us up or puts anyone else down. We're not doing it because we hate anybody. They're doing it because that is what Christ has called them to do, to be his ambassadors, to call to the world, to carry that message to the world, turn back to God. And for doing that, his ministry hasn't gotten big. It hasn't gotten prosperous. His reputation isn't always good. The world doesn't look at him and go, wow, you know, there's a guy we want to have on our talk show. Uh, As far as I know, they didn't have talk shows in the first century. It would be kind of weird. No TVs or radios. But instead he says, in everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. And then he gives the list. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We've been beaten, put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, gone without food. If anybody tells you following Christ is is easy, go back and read that verse again, those verses, four and five. If you ever start thinking, well, if I'm following Jesus, then everything's going to go great for me and people are going to start liking me. Understand you have an enemy that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And the more you follow Christ with your life, the more you are conformed to the image of Christ, the more he is going to fight you the more there will be cost to being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, does God bless you in that? Yes. And the greatest blessing is that promise of eternity that nothing can take away from you because it is in God's hand. Following Christ in this life may actually lead to your death sooner than you expected. And yet it is still a blessing and a win. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of Christ. Patiently enduring troubles, hardships, calamities of every kind. We've been beaten, put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, gone without food. We proved ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, the Holy Spirit within us, our sincere love. You want to know if a person's really following Jesus, if a person's really a minister of the gospel? Look for those hallmarks of character that come with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, he goes on in seven to say, we full, well, excuse me, we faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness. 
in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us. Whether they slander us or praise us, we are honest. But they call us imposters. See, some of the people in the church at Corinth, I'm hesitant to call them believers, had accused Paul of just being an imposter, not a real apostle. Verse 9, he gives his response. He says, we are ignored, even though we are well known. We live close to death, but we are still alive. We've been beaten, but have not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing, and yet we have everything. Now, a couple chapters back, we talked about how Paul was drawing this distinction between having an earthly perspective where you're only focused on what you can see, what you can feel, what's around you, and having that eternal perspective, that perspective that says, I'm going to make decisions now in this life as I go through this world based on the reality of the world to come the reality of eternity with Christ. Here, Paul's talking about what that looks like. That is how you can live close to death and yet be alive. How you can be beaten yet not killed. Have hearts that ache and yet always have joy. Be poor and yet give spiritual riches. Own nothing and yet have everything. And he goes on in verse 11. He says, Oh, dear Corinthian friends, we have spoken honestly with you and our hearts are open to you. There is no lack of love on our part, but you have withheld your love from us. I'm asking you to respond as if you were my own children. Open your hearts to us. He is pleading with the church at Corinth, to be responsive to him and to those in ministry with him. And I don't mean just accepting them when they show up. I mean listening to them and acknowledging God's work through their lives to the church at Corinth. To acknowledge the gospel lived out in front of them. And the evidence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And he calls them to pay attention to that, to respond to that, just as they are showing love for them. They want the Corinthians to show love back to Paul and his associates. Now, I mentioned earlier that there's a problem with the text, or at least an issue with the text, and that comes in here in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. There are some scholars that look at this and say, hey, you know, Paul completely changes gears here in verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. Is this a piece of Paul's work maybe from another letter that got inserted in here, or what's going on with this? Others, and I'm in the camp of the others here, look at this and go, you know, numerous times through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul kind of digresses a little bit, works back and tries to cover some basic points and, and things that the church needed to know. And I think that's what he's doing here just as part of the text. Now, whether this is part of that 
that letter to the church at Corinth from say first Corinthians five, nine that he makes a reference to, or whether this is, you know, part of the text as he intended it here, it really doesn't change that Paul wrote it and that it was inspired by God and is his word for us today. So here we are in verse 14. Let's take a look at what it says. He says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. Now, I know there's different versions. Uh, I think it's New International Version or New King James. I'm not sure which. Um, uses the phrase, uh, be King James, be not unequally yoked. Um, you know, what's a yoke? I, I know some of you know, but some of you are going, I don't know, thing in an egg? No, it's not. Um, but... D- that doesn't really communicate to us. New Living here does a good job. It relates what the text means in its context, the thoughts behind it, the principles behind it. It says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. It's pretty straightforward there. He said, how can righteousness be partnered with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be partnered with an unbeliever? That's pretty straightforward. He's saying, look, these are opposites. In the life of a believer, they don't go together. And in that circle of influence in the life of a believer, they don't belong. You should be surrounded by a circle of influence. Those close friends, those that are pouring into your life, ought to be people that reflect God, that reflect righteousness, that shine the light, that bring harmony, that not trying to mix everything together and think you can get by with it. It's not going to work. And then he gives us the very basic principle of why in verse 16. He says, and what union can there be between God's temple and idols? Now, if you look back in the Jewish sense, we've got the entirety of the Old Testament. All the prophets had to say about the the temple and how it was a place for worship of God, how it was that place where God and man met, all of these things, and how it multiple times it had been corrupted by idol worship. And the temple had to be cleaned out and you know, so on and so forth. So we see that framework from the Old Testament. Paul's kind of applying that to the life of a believer now, saying, what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. See, if we are that temple, then there's no place for idols there either. As he continues with that verse, He says, we are temples of the living God. Then he throws in three really important words. As God said. As God said, yeah. In the next three verses, we're going to see quotes from references to Leviticus, to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel, to Isaiah, back to Ezekiel, to 2 Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. That's a whole lot. That's by my count, what, six, seven, eight different passages of scripture that Paul is going to weave together into three verses to make it clear to the church at Corinth, our relationship with God, that we are God's temple and 
that means that we should be exclusively his. There's no God's temple and I dabble in this or I associate with that. No. Because it says, coming off of the end of 16 or the last part of the first part of 16, as God said, here's the quote, and it's stringing together several quotes. I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourself from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. And I will be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. That's not just name calling. That's God saying, look, you dedicate yourself to me and I will become your father. You will become children of God. Set apart, different, adopted into that relationship with God. But it calls you to be separate, to be different. It doesn't mean we step out of the world and have nothing to do with it. It means we no longer dabble. We no longer say, I'm following God, but I'm going to go to these idol worship feasts, or I'm going to go to these idol worship ceremonies, or I'm going to, I'm going to participate in these pagan temple worship rites, but I'm a believer. So it's okay. No, it's saying, look, God calls me to something more and I'm going to live for him. It's going to be different. God calls us out of who we used to be into who he created us to be in relationship with him. And that's what Paul's reminding the church at Corinth. And I think here he, he is digressing. I don't think that's borrowed from another passage somewhere. I think that's, that's Paul being Paul. He's laid out this argument for him in the five and a half chapters leading up to this. Six and a half chapters. And now he stops and he says, wait a minute, let's make this point real clear. There's God and there's the devil. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, God's temple. And everything else is idols. They don't go together. And let me remind you what God has said throughout the Old Testament and gives you that. So the call to us is to live for him. To live for him. Trusting in him. Living as a righteous people. Not based on what we get, but based on who we are in relationship with Christ. So go live out that relationship, trusting in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us a purpose in this life, that you call us to more than we had or have. You call us to a relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.